a Highline podcast. This is Ravel, a roundtable show about the complexity of faith in the age of information. My name's Josh. I'm Stephen. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of American Christianity, and we still keep thinking about how to take it seriously, even as we leave some beliefs behind. We think theology should be an exploratory dialogue, so our hope is that this podcast will encourage growth, both for individuals and communities. We don't have all the answers, but we're here to sort out as much as we can over a drink or two. Join us as we ravel out our faith in a complex world, pulling on one thread at a time, seeking meaning at the end of it all. Thanks for listening. Welcome, friends. Good to talk to you again. We back, baby. We back. Happy February. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, what are you guys what are you guys drinking? Mm-mm. What you got? Mm-mm. I am enjoying a watermelon LaCroix. Mm-hmm. LaCroix is already kind of you know, it's a hint of a flavor. We know this about LaCroix. There's many jokes about it. But uh right now I'm enjoying it more for the 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 effects it has on my tummy. Like the bubbly is nice. And it is refreshing, though I can't taste even the slight taste. As you guys know, I texted you about it a couple weeks ago, but I came down with the Omicron. I got the, I was mm-hmm. down with the sickness. And oh, I, your Momicron? Down your, with the sickness. Your Momicron, absolutely. Um, yep, I made fun of it by saying it, by calling it your Momicron on Twitter, but uh, <laughs> it kicked my butt, you guys. Yeah, you've been out for a hot yeah. second, haven't you? And I was vaxxed, Literally. I was boosted, I was feeling great about all of it, and then, uh, like, I think I got, I, I think I caught it on my birthday. Um, oh, happy birthday. Which, well, yeah, thank you. Yeah, really, what a gift. Which was a bummer, mm-hmm. but uh, you could you probably hear it in my voice. I honestly wonder if I'm one of the, the long haulers right now, because I'm still dealing with some weird, like, residual congestion, and, you know, my taste is probably only at about 15, 20%, I think, I would estimate. So so you can't even taste that LaCroix right now. No, like, so like I said, it's it's cool, it's refreshing, I like the feeling of the bubbles in my mouth and on my stomach, Zero but taste. I really can't taste it at all. But I, I have tasted it before, like, before I got COVID, this was... It's so you a, remember it's a, the essence yeah. of <laughs> my my brain is giving me like sense memories <laughs> of the watermelon flavor, which I like. I enjoy. How so. crazy! How many days has How it crazy. been now since you've had symptoms? Um, I tested positive. Oh uh, gosh, two weeks ago. Oh man. Yeah. Whew. Well, here's to getting better. I hope those go away soon. Mm-hmm. Emily, what are you enjoying? There you have it. I'm uh two fisting it as Emily classic uh so Mm -hmm. today this morning it was like really cold and so i have like my usual british blend uh, tea but then as i was getting ready to record i look and it's like 50 some odd degrees now here and so i have a wonderful body armor that is blueberry pomegranate flavored uh so i have a cold beverage and a hot beverage because wyoming can't decide what temperature it wants to be (laughs) yeah montana had the same swing today it's super windy, Ugh. though, so it still feels as cold as it was this morning. Oh, see, the wind died down here. And usually, like, Cody is notorious mm-hmm. for being windy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not today. Not today, Satan. Yeah. Not I got to say, I do not miss those crazy mood swings in the weather. Like, this entire time, <laughs> mm-hmm. like, the, you guys had that cold snap. Yeah. And it got up to, like, 50 degrees just now. Like, it's just been a solid 40 degrees here in Seattle. Like, it's 
Lovely. Delightful. Love it. Mm -hmm. I am drinking a mead from Oregon. Ooh. Mm. It's from Nectar Creek Meadery. This one is called Top Bar Coffee. And I went and went and got some mead for one of my uh, old coworkers. And I saw this on the shelf and it is a coffee mead. And I was like, well, I have to buy that for myself. Like I have to. I'm never going to. I'm going to regret it if I don't. So here it is. That makes sense. Live taste. There you go. Huh. That's interesting. I don't think I love it. Oh, no. (laughs) It's like. (laughs) But you don't hate it. Uh. I it's it tastes what you would expect it to taste like. Like it tastes like someone put like cold brew in a mead. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's about it. Yeah. Mm. It's All not right. terrible. So it, I'm gonna drink it. So it just is. It's not bad, but it's not good. It just is. <laughs> it doesn't have like a weird aftertaste or anything. So that's kind of impressive. Yeah. That's a plus. Because that could go a number of ways. Yeah. I could see this being a good breakfast drink, actually. Oh. All you know right. how like some beers don't like bode well at breakfast? I feel like this could do well. Sure. Yeah, I'm okay. into it. Well, beyond our drinks, I have three different things I've been thinking about lately that just like popped into my head and I cannot decide which one <gasps> we should talk about. Oh. Do we need to get the dice out? So we could get the dice out or I could tell you about them or you could just give me a number and I'll just like choose. With and you like have no idea what the other ones uh, are, and we'll just come back to them eventually. Shoot a number, Emily. Oh. Give him a number. Okay, between one and three. Uh, between two. one and three, two. I have written down the socioeconomics of denominations. Wow! Whoa! Wow! All right. <laughs> Emily's <laughs> into this. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Okay. <laughs> okay. I don't have a good question to start with. So maybe I'll just give like a little bit of context of like what I've been thinking about. Yeah, like what sparked this for you? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what sparked it for me, but at some point a couple weeks ago, I was talking about how like Episcopals are generally like a little bit more well off as a whole. Like it's usually upper middle class white people that are Episcopals. Usually. Like not always, but like like there's more likelihood. And then I started talking about like how I think it's kind of impressive that a large portion of evangelical slash like non-denominational and Baptist churches in the U.S. I don't know if this is true outside of the U.S. actually, but I think it's kind of impressive that it seems that they attract a broad swath of people. Certainly there's like racial lines in some parts of the country, but some mega churches you could go to and there are near homeless people or homeless people. And there's multimillionaires. Mm, mm-hmm. Like, regardless of like what we think about their beliefs uh, or money, like that's kind of impressive to like attract like a broad swath of socioeconomic people. And I'm just like kind of fascinated by that. Like, why a why certain denominations seem to attract only a certain type of socioeconomic status, mm. and b the types of churches mm. that seem to attract a broad swath of people, and <laughs> where we think it should be. Like, either way. <laughs> So that's kind of like where my mind is reeling. Oh, fascinating. Because mm-hmm. as we've talked about in previous episodes, like obviously the church like needs money. So like, yeah, I feel like this is like a, a really big critique against the church of like, well, churches are like only trying to attract rich people and blah, blah, blah. But like, that's kind of not true, too. Like some churches, I think that probably is true, um, whether it's conscious or unconscious. But like quite a few churches attract really 
low socioeconomic peoples. Mm hmm. Yeah. My my brain is spinning right now. I'm trying to get all my thoughts together. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Where do you start with this one, Pastor Emily? Yeah, that that's what I was trying to just trying to figure out what I can say from experience in a rural conservative part of the country where Cody is known for what we call the three M's, uh, Mm. Mormons, (laughs) medical and money. And it's in that order for a reason, and it can really go either way. You can think Mormon is the highest or money is the highest. I swing in the direction of money is the number one reason, and it's because we have a lot of retired individuals who, I mean, are just wealthy beyond belief. Mm. And we have a lot of, you know, middle class and working class individuals and families as well, but a huge portion is going to be on the wealthier side and they tend to go to churches at least from my perspective that do the most outreach Mm. like the churches that are the most involved in the community they tend to go to those churches which i think is so nice and great but also that sets you up on a very sticky relationship because that means Mm. that if pastor or a staff member or someone is to upset and said individual who is wealthy, they take their money with them. Right. And they will go and participate elsewhere. And so it's it it's just sticky. But it also depends on how many denominations are available, I think, in your community. Mm. Like here in Cody, we have, oh my gosh, just off the top of my head, like probably 20 churches, maybe. Yeah, versus Seattle that has like thousands on thousands. Right. And even then, like we only have one Methodist church. We have uh, who knows how many Lutheran and Baptist and, you know, we have, I'm pretty sure only one Catholic church, a couple non-denominational. I mean, it just kind of, it really depends on the variety of flavor the churches are providing in the community. And I think location is also one thing to consider too, because noticing those who are transient or homeless, if they don't have a car, if they don't have a means of public transportation, then they go by foot. So they're going to want to go to a place where it's easily accessible. Mm. Do you think that there is uh, any other comparable institution that exists that seems to be successful in drawing upon such a wide variety of socioeconomic status? Like, I don't think I would loop in colleges. No. I wouldn't either. Because as much as there is broken about that system, there's like so much like financial aid available that like does Mm -hmm. make it possible for like lower income people to go. Maybe the college system as a whole. I don't know. That I don't I can't think of any off the top of my head. I do think that like in some cases it's like which one comes first, the chicken or the egg? Like obviously if a town or a certain part of town like tends to be more well off and a church is there and depending on that church's relationship to the community like it just like might be super coincidence that richer people go to a church or poorer Mm -hmm. people go to a church but i i think it's fascinating to like look at the denominations as a whole and see like the trends like i honestly haven't looked at much research i'm sure someone's researching this but like why is it the stereotype that 
Anglican and Episcopal churches tend to be more well off or even the Mormons. Like you mentioned the Mormons, like mm-hmm. there's a lot of wealth in Mormon communities and there's not a lot of poorer people. There's some, but like not a lot. Do you think that maybe this is a stretch, but it's a thought that just popped in my head. Do you think maybe the theological thought of wealth and money, like how we see money and utilizing money is what attracts a certain group of like socioeconomic status. Okay. Yes. Sometimes like, I feel like we have to talk about the prosperity gospel here. Like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the prosperity gospel almost always attracts people who feel below their needed income. Mm. Like Mm. I think sometimes middle-class people are attracted to it, but like more often than not, it's pretty low socioeconomic status people. Mm. Yeah. I think that's part of it. And I guess another side of the spectrum that is maybe not as obviously abusive as the prosperity gospel might be like the, I've heard it called marketplace theology, where you're like encouraged to engage and participate in the consumer marketplace for the mission of the kingdom of God. And so like, if you're wealthy, like you should invest that. Mm. And it's like Mm. encouraging you to keep your money and grow it. Like kind of like in a parable of the talents kind of situation. So it's like, it feels really adjacent to the prosperity gospel, but it's like wealth encouragement. Oh, interesting. I feel like that's usually tied in with like tithing encouragement too. So it's like definitely invested interest. Mm, Another word for what you're touching on, Josh, I think is just like the concept of stewardship, right? Like, oh yeah, stewardship. Mm -hmm. That's, that's the word that came to mind when you brought up that idea of like, yeah, you're, you're a steward of this money. So like do well with it, do what you can to grow it so that you can be generous and all that is like how I've heard that taken, you know? Which like, I'm not going to lie, that sounds attractive. Like, oh yeah, yeah, I want, like, I want that. Like, I want more money so that I can like be more generous to people. Yeah, right. But like, we can't all do that. I don't know. What do you think it is, like, if it's not something explicitly tied to money, what do you think it is about a denomination or a church that like makes it attract a certain class of people? I think environment has a lot to do with it. And I'll kind of explain that as best as I can. So, and again, I'm very limited because I am, you know, DNA Methodist. Most of the Methodist churches that I have been in are very inviting, are very like family home-esque kind of ambiance to it. Like, yes, we have stained glass and we have like a chancel and we have a fancy narthex and like all these other elements that other churches have too. But there's... I think the way that a church utilizes space and how they present themselves attracts groups of people who kind of fit Mm. into those spaces a bit more like, Mm. you know, and we do have wealthy individuals in our congregation, but they're very family oriented people. And so, you know, they're the ones that are hosting lunches and the potlucks and, you know, helping with decorating for Christmas and things like that. It's not a very shiny cold space it's a very warm it's like a hobbit hole (laughs) nice thinking about it you know and i think yeah churches the way that they embody a space and how they utilize space you know what color are the walls and do they have really fancy you know crystal glassware in their bathrooms or you know do Mm. they have posters hanging up throughout their halls or whatever the case may be i think 
how buildings are utilized attracts those kinds of people. Yeah, I think of the way that architecture can inspire like a sense of awe or like smallness in yourself amidst a very large space. So like Mm -hmm. visiting a Catholic cathedral, you know, kind of inspires that just feeling of humility. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe that's maybe that attracts a certain type of person with a certain wealth level or, you know, who has a certain position in their community. Plus, the pendulum probably swings a little bit, too. Yeah. Mm, Oh, I would Mm. say definitely. Like, it's so easy to for someone to, like, criticize a super ornate, really expensive church building and then go look at like a minimalist mega church or cathedral and be like, oh, my gosh, this is incredible. Like, they obviously care about not spending money or something. Sure. Yeah. Like, it, I feel like it could just, like, swing both directions. Yeah. I mean, at our last church, like, people would make the joke that we were the H&M, H&M church because a lot of people <laughs> who went to that church wore H&M clothes. So, like, there's, there's even a vibe there, you know, of, like, mm-hmm. even the clothing style of the people who are already embedded there. Like, a new person comes in. And like the clothing choice of the pastor even can give you a sense of like, I don't belong here. I don't think, Mm. you know, I think that's one thing that uh, preachers and sneakers points out so well. I was just going to say that. Um, Yes. You know, like I, I see photos of these guys with the like thousand dollar sneakers or whatever. I mean, that's a low number comparatively, but Mm -hmm. like, I just look at that and not even trying to not make a judgment on like that's too much for shoes because sometimes they're gifts or you know like there's a whole thing about preachers and sneakers but for me it's like man i just can't imagine caring that much about my shoes (laughs) oh right you know so i'm like i i don't know if i fit in with this if this is if this is the signal that's like that can be sent even by like the choice of shoes you have or the watch you wear you know Mm -hmm. i think that's such a good example because like that is such a very culturally relevant example about like status symbols and how yeah like their public or private display like really can communicate yeah. a lot mm-hmm. like cuz on one hand like a, a pastor wearing a certain brand like will attract other people wearing that brand like it's very subconscious but like mm-hmm. you see someone and you're like they're like me yeah. they like the same things yeah. i like i can relate to them they're relatable okay so part of me wonders if the denominations in particular Episcopalian, but maybe like even Methodist, uh, because Emily, you wear like a robe at church. Not every Sunday, but yes. Okay. Oh, really? I wear a robe for communion, uh, first Sunday of the month. Um, and then for special services. So like a Holy Week. Gotcha. Christmas Eve, things like that. Um, or like if I'm doing a baptism, then I wear it there too. Um, but most Sundays, I i mean, I try to dress nice, but I, I have to tell you the one Sunday I But it's did, like Western casual. It is. Yeah. And the one time I ended up wearing jeans was probably like the best feeling in the world, honestly. Hmm. Interesting. So maybe Episcopalian is the better example or even uh, Catholicism, because I think about like all the, the ornaments and robes and cords and right and, and all those things that those denominations like choose to dress their clergy in which in some ways is neutral but on other in the other way it's like kind of regal too it's regal and even you you kind of proved my point the way you just kind of offhanded were like fancy you know when you said that right like Mm, yeah it that Mm -hmm. inspires that sense of like i don't know like connecting to something ancient or at least like traditional and old 
whereas, you know, go to H&M church and you feel a lot different because there's like holes in his jeans and he's wearing a leather jacket or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. So like some of those choices, even that are being broadcast with nonverbal cues, like the clothing that, I mean, that probably appeals to some sense of tradition. And I, you know, I think there is research to say this, but essentially like the, the further along you are in age, the more like traditional feeling some of your values can become. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it happens that the further you are along with age, you probably just have more wealth by the fact that you've lived longer in this economy. Mm, Yeah. Which is funny because I feel like so many churches, (laughs) like the quote unquote dying church stereotype is always trying to attract families and young people because they're the future of the church. But like the, the majority of their, their congregation is like older people who are close to retirement and like, I've seen several times people in a church pass away and like leave a decent part of their estate to the church. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. That's that's pretty normal. Like it's really in a church's like financial interest to like have more older people in some ways. Definitely. But even that the you know that experience of people like leaving church or leaving religion in their 30s and 40s and sometimes coming back in their fifties and sixties, you know, that like they're returning to the tradition they grew up in or something like that. Like, I don't know. The whole dying church phenomenon is so, it has always been very puzzling to me because honestly, I just want to, and maybe this feels like a kind of a snooty answer, but it's like, if we worried less about like the dying church and just focused on being the church, like, I think, I think (laughs) Jesus has it handled. I think Jesus will keep his church going if he wants it, you know? Preach it, Stephen. Preach it. Yeah. <laughs> I was just talking with a friend the other day about that phenomenon, actually. And we were like speculating because he's uh, he's currently in full time ministry. And so we were speculating about like the future of the church. Like, what do we think is going to happen in the next like 50 years as we like probably start to decentralize the building a little bit more, whether it's like digital church or like home churches or like mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And we floated the possibility of. Like, what if, like, dying churches in smaller communities start to, like, cohabitate together in the same building and maybe even in the same services where you, like, have two or more denominations, like, represented in one congregation? Like a merger. That's more common than you think. (laughs) Is it? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like, do you have any examples? Oh, I have a number of examples. Uh, Yes. Depending on geographical location and particular churches appointment systems sometimes what they'll do is if they can't have a pastor sent to a church or if there isn't anyone who's like a locally licensed pastor then they will utilize other church buildings and even their pastors for services and so like i remember i think it was in elk grove when i was interning there were a couple churches where on Sunday mornings, you know, the Methodist church was meeting, but then Sunday afternoons, it was the Presbyterians or, sure. you know, or even during the week, you know, a church would be utilizing the building for their service instead. One of the Methodist churches actually in Colorado flooded and so they couldn't worship in their space. And so other churches opened up and allowed them to utilize their buildings until their church could be fixed. I mean, it happens so much. And I think it's great that there are churches and and denominations that are allowing this to happen because it can be so easy to say, oh, well, you're a Methodist, like, and I'm a Presbyterian, we can't get along or whatever the case may be. And, and to say, sorry, we can't help you, but 
if you're willing to open up. Yeah, like how I was in high school. Toward you. <laughs> right. But now look at us. Oops. We're recording a podcast together. Yeah. Look at us go. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it happens a lot and it's great. And I think that also speaks to what am I trying to say? I think that also speaks to how people perceive church and money at the same time. If a church is willing to say, here's a space available that you can use. We know you're a different denomination. We know that theologically there may be some slight deviation, but come utilize this space, you know, and if they open it up to where they can use it for outside projects or whatever the case may be, Mm. I think that also speaks to how they see money and how they treat money. And I think that also attracts people. Yeah, I feel like I've seen churches like share the space for different times of the week or the day or stuff like that. But I think that what I'm more interested in is like, have we seen a congregation yet that has like fully merged two separate denominations and or groups of people into like one quote unquote body of people? Mm-hmm. Hmm. There's a number of Methodist churches that are actually Methodist slash Presbyterian or Whoa. Methodist slash Lutheran or Methodist slash even Episcopalian. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now that's Methodists, fancy. We, we take on everyone. <laughs> <laughs> that's fancy. Fascinating. And they shared like they shared the same pastor. Here's a question. Do you think it's impressive when a church does attract a wide array of socioeconomics? Like just because it does and just because it's like one of the only institutions probably that is able to accomplish it over a period of time. Is that impressive? Like, is that a good thing? Or is it better when a church like appeals to a group of people and like actually meets them where they're at in a cultural context? Like, I feel like that's some of the like the methodology of like some church plants or like missions work. But I'm also not convinced that that's good or effective. Mm. I would say that I find it impressive and extremely healthy if to use a word from before, if that community and especially the church leadership is able to steward that diversity well. Mm. I think if leadership is not able to maybe bridge the divide or be able to show that like here at our Eucharist table, everyone is welcome and there's no position of hierarchy based on like how much you tithe versus how much the other person gives like only occasionally because that's how much they can afford. Like I think as long as, you know, and this probably speaks a lot more to the, you know, theologies you have around money and community and even your political opinions on economics or something. Mm-hmm. I think just understanding a church really ought to understand that like the call of the Eucharist table is to equalize everyone where everyone gets a bite to eat and gets to feel satisfied because I've anecdotally heard it from other churches in the Billings community. Um, and I've, I've firsthand witnessed it a couple times that kind of weirded me out where it was like leadership would like hold special events for like the top tithers of, at the church. Oh, that's oh. weird. I don't like that. And yeah, I started hearing about that and I'm like, that is just, what is that? Like, do you call it favoritism? I don't even know what you call that. It just feels so gross to me. And so like opposite of the way Jesus established a church that is supposed to transcend boundaries of gender and race and economic status. Mm-hmm. That just feels so backwards to me. Well, I feel like that's the big question. Like, is it supposed to transcend 
class and status? And what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, I would say, yes, it's supposed to, because I think that's the theological statement Paul is making when he says, like, some of you are getting full and drunk before some other members of the community are even available to show up. And even in even the passages about favoritism, like put the poor person at the head of the table next to the host instead of arranged in a hierarchy on the floor. I think that's the way it ought to be, or at least that's the vision I feel like Jesus and then Paul have for the body. Mm-hmm. What do you feel like is the end goal of that then? Like if the teachings of Jesus are actually calling for there to be no class or economic barrier between peoples, what does that look like? And or is that even possible or is it just like a thing to strive towards? Mm. I, I would argue it's possible. I think it's all in a like a kind of like a kingdom vision toward just unconditional sacrificial love for neighbor. And I think that I, that is certainly achievable. I mean, it's hard to do. It's hard to sustain. But like, I, I have no indication that Jesus thought it would be easy <laughs> either, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and ultimately, I think kind of that reminder of like, do not s- store up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy kind of that idea of like realize what's important like your money is going to move back and forth throughout your life you know markets change whatever you know governments are overthrown but where the true value is in humanity is our is our fellow humanity and like understanding that a connection to like the bodies in the room with us is a lot more than just like the money we give them or take from them Mm We just want to say how honored we are that you listen to Ravel. Seriously, there's a lot of great shows out there, and we're grateful to be in your feed. Thank you for helping us on our journey to normalize people asking questions about theology. If you want to support what we're doing, the best way to help is to tell a friend about us. We want to be a resource for people on their faith journeys, whether they're deconstructing, reconstructing, switching churches, deconverting, and everything in between. And if you're able, you can support us for as little as $3 a month on our Patreon. Supporting us helps us cover fees, software, equipment, future ideas, and more. For all of you church finance skeptics out there like me, don't worry, we're keeping an open book for transparency. For our supporters, we've built an online space where we can be together. We know it can be difficult to ask questions about our faith, so we want to make that more accessible, comfortable, and normal. We're using an app called Discord, where you'll get private access. You already know us, and we'd love to get to know you. Thank you to everyone who's already supporting, and thank you to Louis Zong for the use of our theme music, In Full Color. Ravel is a founding podcast of the Highline Media Network. And here's a word from one of our sister shows, No Normal People. Hello, friends. This is Stephen and Dixie Lee with No Normal People. We are hard at work on season three of the podcast that will be coming out April of 2022. And we would like to extend a formal invitation to you. Do you like rocks or beans or planes? Yeah, I like beans. We People like those things. <laughs> and you might also like those things. And we would love to talk about it with you. If you like those things or have other or passions other and things. interests that you want to talk about. It and doesn't you, have to exclusively be those things. We would love to feature you <laughs> on No Normal People. And you can sign up to be on the show by emailing us at nopeoplepod at gmail.com. 
that's K-N-O-W People Pod, or sign up on our show page at www.highline.network. And bonus points if you actually do want to talk about beans. I love beans. I like coffee beans. That's a good bean. So what do you think of that? Do you think it just sounds too easy the way I'm like sermonizing about that kind of vision or do you think it do you think it's possible? Oh, I think it's possible. I think it's I think it's possible. But I also think there are people who would say Stephen is seeing the world through rose colored lenses. I've been accused Um, of that many of times. (laughs) Yeah. And like I I am right there with you, Stephen. I would love so much for that to be a reality. But I also know the greed and the fear that reside in people and that extends to money as well. Like how we Hmm. use money, misuse money, think of money and ultimately like where that money goes or doesn't go to. Like I know I have one lady in particular, I'm just thinking off the top of my head in my church who says, you know, I, I can't tithe 10%. I can only give what I have. And, and she just feels so guilty for it. Mm. But she's like one of the most devout and mm. like most wholesome people I know. And I know there are people in churches who, you know, they throw money into the offering pr- plate like it's, you know, like it's nothing. They have so much that they can do that, but their heart may not always be in it. It's more of a this is a tax write-off or whatever the case may be. Hmm. It just really depends. It really depends. I would love to see that achieved one day. Will I be alive for that to happen? I don't know. I don't know if it's something to achieve and then just it's the way it is from now on. I think it's a a constant area of focus and growth for everyone involved, you know? Oh, absolutely. Can we actually achieve it? I don't know. How many times have you heard a pastor talk about they want to get back to the church in Acts. Never. <laughs> really? I feel like I've heard it really? so much. That's fascinating me too. to me. Me too. I feel like I've heard it a lot. You've never heard someone say that? No. Maybe that's a denominational difference because I think our, yeah. mostly my non-denominational, but also mostly Baptist roots, people were all, were all about the Acts, the early church. Yeah, no. That's so fascinating to me. Yeah, I feel like like between several different circles that I grew up in, I feel like I've heard lots of people mention that, which even back then, I think, seemed very ironic to me because like the current status of the church looks nothing like that. Mm-hmm. And so on one hand, it like seems intriguing and you're like, oh, yeah, let's get back to the roots. But on the other hand, it's like, how? Like, how would you even do that? Like, it looks <laughs> completely different. Mm-hmm. Like, I think of the status thing, for example, and like... Everybody having everything in common is very communal and like in some ways sounds like communism, even though I know it's not the same as like Mm -hmm. the modern form of communism. But like what church actually wants that in practice? Right. Like it sounds beautiful. Like it sounds great. Everyone's needs being taken care of. Everyone caring for each other. It sounds awesome. But like who's actually pursuing that? Maybe a good, mm, maybe a good the question. nuance to your point is what American church wants to see that. Because I, I don't, true, I don't know yeah. if we can speak that well to global movements, but yeah, certainly the American models I've seen, yeah, I'm not sure they actually want that. But part of me wonders if that's just if if that's more because church has become 
like more of a cultural thing. You know, I just think of people who just like grow up going to church and it's just, it's the thing we do on Sundays. That's what Sundays are for is church. Uh-huh. And not necessarily captured by the radicalness of some of the things that the beliefs profess. Mm. Mm. I think about, I, I heard him recently on the Voxology podcast, Dr. Tim Gombus was talking about how like when the church was especially captured with the idea that, you know, we shouldn't be inviting as many people to church as we can just so that we can like make sure less people go to hell and more people go to heaven. That's where things shifted, especially in America away from the true like disciple making work that the church in acts especially was engaged in like mm-hmm. Gombas in that, in that podcast, he talks about like, he he's he's convinced that we should be more hesitant to actually share our faith if we completely grasp and understand like the huge gravity of saying hey you should come to my church and i will be an active personal participant in making you a disciple of christ like that is a lifelong commitment you make to every person that you try and invite into the faith and that should be like a big that's a big commitment. That's like, that's like something we ought to think about. Whereas, you know, a lot of the time I think that churchgoers are just encouraged to like invite as many people as you can as kind of like a proxy marketing department to get more people in the door. Okay. This is a little bit of a pivot, but I just thought of this question. Do you think from your anecdotal experience, have you noticed any socioeconomic trends in people deconstructing slash rethinking things slash leaving the church. I'd be really curious to hear some stats on that. Mm. Like part of me wants to say it's people in our age group because that's just like the trend of the dying church, right? Like it's people in their like thirties and forties that are like not in the church. Yeah. Actually, I did see some stats recently. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Holding on. It's not completely the same as what I'm talking about, but um, I just saw this is from uh, Ryan Berg on Twitter. Oh, great follow. He's an American Baptist pastor. He makes a lot of graphs about religion. He reads and writes a lot about the nuns. Yep. And uh, I just found this. He made this graph. We can put a link to it in the show notes, um, but it's basically demonstrating that between 20 between 2008 and 2020 the people in the age group of they were like born between the years 1950 to 1980 it's peaking right now that those people are not attending church hmm. and then it's like dropping off on both sides oh interesting so that's like that's like what 40s to 60s mm-hmm. so i mean that's obviously like large scale data and doesn't like take into account like what's going on in each of those people's lives. But, but still like, it could just be my perception because I know more people this age. Um, but I find that there's a lot of people in their twenties right now that are rethinking their faith quite a bit or like taking a step Mm -hmm. back from church or Mm -hmm. like trying to, but maybe that's just like the story of faith. I don't know. Yeah. Anecdotally, I would say, I, I see a lot of the same thing, a lot of the same age group and also like uh, pretty reflective of what are called like progressive political views. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
And I, I like anecdotally, even for me, I think part of it was looking at like the way that conservatism has captured the churches I grew up in or like the type of churches I grew up in and looking at that and being like, I don't vibe with that so much. So what's somewhere else, you know, yeah. that's, that's where at least I can track quite a few shifts, even in my political thinking is not only deconstructing some of the theology, like conservative theologies as we call them, but also like conservative ideologies of like, you know, political views and economics even. You know what I was just thinking about? This mm. is like a, t- a total pivot. Did you guys in your churches ever ta- have like, f- like financial peace university and like yeah. Dave Ramsey type conversations? Oh yeah, totally. I only did at my, uh, uh, like most recent church that was like three years ago. And like what, to like to what capacity was that in? Oh, I mean like I, I have taken financial peace university. I only saw it happen and they were offering it like once a year and it was like for free. But I think by that point I was already like a Dave Ramsey skeptic. I was like, what is this guy? <laughs> this does not seem legit. <laughs> so I, I wasn't like, I didn't like grow up with it, you know? So Steven, what, what was your takeaway from participating in that? Um, I, I think he has some good ideas about the way money behaves and the way money can work. I, mm-hmm. I do not listen to him for any kind of theological takes or, uh, wisdom. Yeah. I guess that's, that's my main takeaway is like, I, I, I we don't see eye to eye, even the way he reads the book of Proverbs mm-hmm. for all his money advice. But I mean, full disclosure, like I, I've worked the financial plan that he lays out um, successfully so far, like Dixie and I got it out of, out of debt. We have a robust emergency fund. We bought a house with a zero credit score. Like it's worked for me. And that's why I'm like, yeah, I, I, I think he has some decent things to say about money, but not necessarily the way money intersects with my faith or my theology and the way I practice either one. Interesting. Okay. I was just what, curious. What about you, Emily? I haven't ever utilized it. I mean, it's talked about a lot in like the Methodist church, but we also have like our own financial, I guess, programs. Um, Mm -hmm. And we have it especially for clergy, which I think is so important Um, because clergy, like, I don't know, some of them may just have all this knowledge off the top of their head, but I know like me going into my first appointment, trying to figure out taxes for the very first time working as a nonprofit and being exempt from federal taxes and yet having to pay social security and like what all that looks like. It's interesting that the conversations that don't happen about money. And so Mm. the Methodist church actually has programs and people that like we can utilize that lay out, you know, plans and things like that for us. Um, But they also have resources available for just parishioners. And I think that's so helpful Mm. to say, Here's someone that you can talk to, you know, about money and feel comfortable and safe about money. And it's someone who is on the same theological page as you are. So that's why I was curious. To yeah. Know. Yeah, that's cool. What has been interesting is I, I started kind of being interested in the whole Ramsey way of doing money when my theology probably matched up a lot more. Mm. So since then, I, I have like I've had steps every so often where I'm like. Yeah, I see why I used to buy into that completely, but now I see it Mm -hmm. a little differently. Yeah. I was curious to ask you, Emily, because Josh and I were talking about kind of like 
the the age group or just like our anecdotal observations on like especially like deconstructionist or like raveling type people are mm-hmm. i was curious to ask your experience of that or any uh anecdotes you have being a young pastor in what i still think of as a fairly like older subset of the population denominationally i mean i pretty much agree with you guys I would like to know if I had more young people attending church, you know, would my would my answer change? And I really don't know. Yeah, I really don't. That's a that's a tough one, honestly. And I think it also, again, is a generational thing about money. You know, my church in particular is an older denomination, but they are kind of, I would say, ideologically they're kind of split in the sense of you either are a penny pincher and you i don't want to say give the bare minimum because they're not just like giving the bare minimum but like they really do try to conserve as much as they can and so that means spending as little as they can yeah or they are very generous almost too generous to the point where it's like well no you need to survive too like you don't need to buy all these treats for fellowship time. Like we have line budget items for that, you know? Hmm. Um, interesting. It is interesting. And I think it just is also a personality thing where people, you know, they say, well, I, I need to give this much or I want to give this much and how they grew up with money and, you know, the jobs that they had. Most of the, a good number of people in my church were either teachers or nurses. And so they had jobs where they were constantly serving the needs of others. Mm-hmm. And that just ties into how they participate, you know, financially in in their life. And that includes the life of the church. Hmm. Uh the other week, Elise and I were watching this documentary about these snake handlers and it turned out to be more like true crime <laughs> than it was like about like the culture of snake handling theology like stuff like that. It was more like about this one specific case. It's still fascinating. Uh, we can put a, a link in the show notes. I think it's on HBO okay. Go or something. But one of the things that it got me thinking about, and actually this might have been where I started thinking about this a couple weeks ago, is that with a, a subset of theology and like church network like snake handlers and faith healers, I think those groups tend to be more associated with lower income, backcountry type people. But it's like hard to tell like which one's the chicken, which one's the egg, because like, Mm. those Appalachian areas are more lower income. Like they're not cities. They're very highly rural. And they also like usually have a tradition of like Appalachian folklore and folk belief and folk practice. And so like, that's a whole bag of influence that most other regions of Christianity don't have. And like, that's how like the whole snake handling practice, like kind of flourished. Like that doesn't really happen in any other parts of the world from my understanding. And that's really fascinating to me. Like, it's really hard to draw, like, a causation, but, like, there's something about, like, that perfect pool of factors that, like, Mm. draws people into that kind of theology. And on a correlation level, at least, those people are all lower income. That's a very good point. But obviously, like, I'm I'm not trying to, like, I'm not trying to, like, demean them or, like, demean their beliefs, um, but, like, like, on a social level, that's really fascinating to me. I would love to see some some data on like if that's true of like the faith healing movement at large like if you're more likely to like seek faith healing if you yourself feel like medically inadequate to seek medical care 
Because mm. rich people don't feel that. Like, if you have great health benefits, like, I don't see why you would want to go to a faith healer. Right. Like, m- maybe you're, like, entertaining the idea or, like, you're more along the lines of, like, praying that God would help the surgeon or, like, stuff like that. Because you know that you can, like, afford whatever care you need. Interesting. But I think that's a fascinating intersection. Hmm. Yeah. So, like, what do we do with this? You know, like, if we are mm. noticing trends or patterns, what do we what do we do with that? Should we try to break those? Should we embrace them? Where do we like, where do we go from here? That's what I want to know. I think acknowledgement is the first step. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it necessarily means that a church should be like, oh, we have no rich people. We should like figure out how to attract more rich people or we don't have any poor people to bless. Let's figure out how to bring them in. Like, I don't think that that's the Mm -hmm. point. What I think can be profoundly changing for someone is to like personally investigate why you think a certain church community is only attracting a certain type of people, whether it's related to money or not. Mm. And I just think that that can be revealing. Like, I don't even think that has to be like a good or bad thing morally, but like, I think just like observing something. Hey, that's very scientific and very sociological, but like that is often, I think, what leads to like insights about like something should change. Like, mm-hmm. how can we change? Like, Stephen, you got me thinking about like diversity and stuff. Like, there's a lot of companies I've noticed out here in Washington that are like, I know some people who work in like the HR world and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And there's, a, I don't know if there's like labor laws around this actually, but I've noticed that there is quite an abundance of. Uh, people who work in positions where like all their job is about is diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm-hmm. And, like it's a s- very specific like HR related role. And like, I never heard about that in Montana. Like maybe it's just because there's not like big corporations as much, but like regardless of like where you are politically, like the only reason that came about is because people started recognizing like, Oh, like our company is like all look the same. And like, we're not thriving as much as that company that has like all different types of people. Like how can we, improve or like what are we doing wrong or whatever yeah sure like i don't even necessarily think like in regarding churches and theology i don't necessarily think it means that there's abuse going on or like abuse of money but i think that like noticing a correlation in the type of people that a community is attracting a can highlight bad theology or abuse that's going on and b i think can be the first step in productive change i like that and sometimes that means the church closes. Sometimes that's productive. Yes. Maybe they mesh with another congregation <laughs> because they have no money and they realize they're better yeah. together. I don't know. Or it at least helps you reveal like where the priorities are at. Yeah. If you can go without the light items in the budget for snacks, mm-hmm. really demanding some like particular attention to like where, how are our values being betrayed by the way we write checks? Mm. Ooh. Put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's huge. But I also think it can highlight like the broken points. Like if a church says that it cares about something, but then mm-hmm. like the people that it's attracting is like not that or like completely opposite of that, mm. then like that should be a red flag. Mm. Right. Like, I don't know, like in, in relation to the money question, like if a church says that it cares about bringing in all different types of people and caring for the poor and the sick and the widow and nobody in that church looks like that like Mm -hmm. that's a red flag 
mm-hmm. that that's a marketing ploy and they're not putting their money where their mouth is. I feel like that's kind of what you're getting at. Yeah. Right. Amen. There we go. End of episode. Thanks, guys. No. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. I just Mic want drop. I just want to find some you know it exists out there. I want to find some church that is stealing the Olive Garden motto. When you're here, you're family. <gasps> you know somebody's doing that. I feel like they're yeah, there are flavors of that everywhere. I've gotten iterations of that from old. From I would say I think churches. my church is kind of guilty of that, but we don't actually say that. But we do act like family. Like we do truly we just try to live it we, as a we we do. We <laughs> truly like we truly are family. Yeah. At least like in my church I I get that sense and we do have a number of people who are poor and a number of people who are sick or homebound and a number of people who are widows or going to be widows and like just knowing that even those people like they range in status as well. Right. You know, like we do have so many walks of life in just the town of Cody in itself. And so to be a place that says like, yeah, we welcome all y'all. If you're <laughs> if you're willing to come, like if you want to be here, we're here. If you are questioning, we're here. Like I I just think it's sad when churches want to say that they are one thing and then they are not living into that. And Josh, I think you're right. Like it's red flag for sure. Yeah, I also think of the way like I I think I was particularly making fun of just like the toxicity that can come along with like we're a family oriented small business. And that's to me Even that's the way you say that. To me, that's just so many like yucky red flags, you know? <laughs> like, yeesh. No thank you. So, yeah. Uh speaking of churches who have done things weird in the past. Oh, yeah. The three of us are going to be releasing a new bonus episode in February where we're just going to deep dive all our hot, spicy takes in reaction to the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast. Because mm-hmm. I'm sure Emily has some hot takes as a pastor, uh, kind of listening into that story. Who do I? My connection to the whole story is being a fan of uh, the band Emery and the Bad Christian guys who are involved with Mars Hill, like pretty much toward the end. Josh, the podcast is full of sociology takes that I'm sure you're very much into. So I have a lot of thoughts. Yeah. So we have a bonus episode planning on coming out in February. And then in March, listen up patrons. If you are in the Patreon group, by the time we host this event, we still have yet to determine a day and time. But what we want to do is we want to release this Mars Hill bonus episode, which I'm in my head affectionately calling the rise and fall of the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast podcasts. <laughs> okay. Yep. Signed, sealed, <laughs> delivered. Um, yep. We want to release that bonus episode and give the patrons a chance to sit with our thoughts. And also if they have thoughts and we're going to do a live event in discord that we record and make its own bonus episode, but with and featuring the voices of our patrons who want to hang out and bring their own hot and spicy takes. So that means that you all get to participate. Yes. We get to hear your thoughts, not just reading a comment on a screen, but actually hearing your voice. That's right. Speak up. Uh, yeah. And we want to hear it. We want to hear it all. So, yeah, I'm excited for that. Be looking out for that. Um, in the meantime, you can find our hot and spicy takes on many other things. I had a fun tweet about Kanye that got some attention today. Um, I am <laughs> at Stephen G. Henning on Twitter and Instagram. 
I'm at Josh Llewellyn on Twitter. I think I'm at Joshua Llewellyn on TikTok too, if you're on TikTok. Yeah, that's right. And I am uh, at Rev Writing House on Instagram. And Twitter. We're still trying to coerce you into using the Twitter, yeah. but it exists. Mm, nope. I <laughs> Emily, I had a really good hot take about a strip club this week. <laughs> yes, he did. It went semi-viral. <laughs> yes, it did. did. It? it was awesome. I just... I you didn't see know. it, did you? I said, I'm going to start a strip club for ex-vangelicals. Called? Oh called? I'm going to call it See You at the Pole, Daddy. <laughs> no. No, my ears oh. are melting. So, uh, no. so these are the delightful things you can find on our Twitters. <laughs> oh you can also God. follow the show at Ravelpod on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Wow. Emily, okay. <laughs> what word do you have about the socioeconomical status of denominations for our benediction? You know, we all come from various backgrounds. We all come from various experiences with money and wealth and how we see money being used in our everyday life and in the life of the church. And we are all raveling out together how it is that we can use money to better the world, to better ourselves, and to know that it's a topic that's sticky and messy and complicated. But it's those conversations that are the ones that we need to have. So keep on raveling. Keep on raveling. And welcome to No Normal People. This is a show where we prove that the more you get to know the normal people in your life, you discover that there really are no normal people in your life. You know how there's like famous people in the world that are known very well and how they go on podcasts? Yeah. Well, we don't do that. Marketable names and yeah, audience. Buzzwords, and, and buzz and names. Social following. Yeah. And, John yeah. Buzz. And, well, we interview people like your Uncle Terry, who collects model trains. Because he's normal. We'll even interview you, even if you don't have the cool trains that your uncle has. You can email us at nopeoplepod at gmail.com or visit our show page on www.highline.network to sign up to be on the show. And remember, the only normal people you know are the ones you don't know very well. Highline Media Network. Artist-owned podcasts by normal people in normal places.